the llama had actually been deceased for probably two weeks or better. Oh. She decided that it was making the other llamas depressed <laughs> and that she would like to have it cremated. All right, we got Michael Squared here today. Double embalmers, double Michaels. You're about to learn a lot from two guys that have been doing it for quite some time. How are you doing, Michael? Doing very well. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Tell us um, about how you got into the funeral industry. Uh, I know you're from Indiana, um, but you're kind of bouncing around. You got some um, experience in a few different places. So tell us how you got into this and how long you've been um, working in the funeral industry, especially um, on the embalming side. I know you do that a lot. So give us kind of your background, if you don't mind. Yeah, uh, I started initially in 2009. I went to uh, a mortuary school and my original introduction with everything was that I worked at a florist. So I used to deliver the flowers and about 70% of the business in that area where I was from was going to the funeral homes. And uh, there just so happened to be the biggest funeral home in town was right next door to the florist. Of course. we shared a parking lot with him, so it was a lot of time going over, shooting the breeze with the guys, uh, you know, and going back and forth over time. And I was like, I think I can do that. Sure. And uh, sure. and it just so happened to be two towns over was a mortuary school. So that, uh, it was kind of convenient where I was driving around delivering to the funeral homes and I kept passing it up. And one day I was like, I'm going to stop in there. Mm-hmm. and signed up and two weeks later i was in mortuary school wow quick turnaround uh that's actually funny that you said the the funeral home was right next to the florist when uh when i was growing up we had a, a funeral home that was closer to the city I, i'm i'm in chicago and my uncle always wanted the rest of my family to own or open up a floor a floral shop next to the funeral home and um, i just always heard stories of my grandpa being like we don't want to dip our hands in every single pot. Like we want to stay in our lane. We do funerals well. Like let's keep it to that. Right, but right. you've heard all the time, like uh, funeral homes opening, like flower shops. It it just makes a lot of sense, uh, especially for you know high volume places and things that people are actually using flowers for. I know that's kind of fading a little bit, but still, I I feel like it's a viable one two punch there. Yeah, I mean, uh, it definitely keeps everything in house, and if you're yep that close next door you're going to be convenient to get everything you need and then still be able to you know serve other families at other places yeah it's it's quality assurance too like you know that you're going to have good stuff if you're the ones managing it and you're able to to kind of do it that way too that's that's pretty cool so tell us uh i know you're licensed in a couple different states How, how did that process go um, I, you're in Florida now, so you've, you've been a, in a couple different places. Um, how'd you get licensed or how'd you, uh, find your way through a, a few different states of, you know, being a licensed embalmer? Um, originally uh, just growing up, I was, uh, in a Navy family. So we, we moved around to the different port city kind of areas. Nice. Um, I, I originally in the Midwest, uh, my father worked for uh, a naval ordnance base that was making um, military stuff, but then we ended up going to Florida and up the coast. So I'm licensed in 
Kentucky, Florida, and Maine, um, which seems like a big stretch, but yeah. uh, <laughs> for the most part, everything um, very similar as far as um, reciprocating licensing. Uh-huh. Essentially, you know, you're just transferring all your paperwork and taking the state exam for that state mm-hmm. to get licensed, the law exam. That makes sense. And and why then Maine? I know you're you did work in uh, Kentucky and now you're in Florida. So so why'd you why'd you get that Maine light licenseship too? Yeah, I've actually been Florida twice. Uh, I went oh. from Kentucky to Florida to Maine and then back to Florida. <laughs> wow! So you've been you've been uh, have a lot of experience. Is there a lot of big? What are the biggest differences? Those are pretty three quite vastly different areas of the country. So. What would you say are the biggest differences you have seen between um, those three states as far as funeral side of things? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, partially religion. Okay. I would give that a big factor um, yeah. just because like in Maine specifically, it was probably 80% or more Catholic services. Okay. Um, you have the French Canadians across border and just that region of the country, the New England region, it, it's real heavy in there. And that was, I mean, a majority of our services that we had. And then, um, you know, flip it on the downside in Florida, it's still a lot of Catholics, a lot of Spanish Catholics, though. Uh-huh. So we would um, a ton of masses. And even in, in the Midwest, uh, it's a little more Christian, I would say a little more open to stuff. But sure. Uh, overall, I think it's it's very similar as far as what the people expect and kind of yeah the presentation if you will sure sure it's just cool to get the different experiences and you get to learn from each different region I, I feel like you could bring different tips and tricks as you go along in that way too so it's nice to to kind of spread you know spread out throughout the country and find what works for you a little bit too yeah, volume was definitely a factor, especially when you get up to a place like Maine, where it's just so much smaller in population. Yeah. Um, so that was, I primarily done most of my career embalming. That was one time where I had to step out of the boundaries for the years that I was up there and do both sides of it, just because oh. it wasn't there for me to be in the prep room. So do you, would you say you prefer the prep room then? Is that kind of your 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 go-to or do you think you're ever like down the line in a few years do you think you're going to switch over or, or what do you think you're looking at for your future uh i think I'll, I'll probably stick with the prep room for the most part i don't mm-hmm. mind meeting families at all it's something i very much enjoy but the, yeah. the dynamic is so much different you know yeah uh, what focused on absolutely and i know you were at um a high volume funeral home at one point in your in your career uh, tell us about that and tell us, did you have any good stories from um, being in such a such a high volume area? And what are some of the things that, that you got to see that us funeral directors would would like to hear, like to know? We love we love the interesting stories from everyone. Yeah, um, I worked for a mortuary service in the Midwest that at the time we were doing around 7,000 calls a year annually. And I oh think they've gosh. more than doubled that now. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, and, and How is that even possible? 
I, it was just more so we ran, you know, 24 hours, yeah, uh, 24 7, 365. And uh, the way their system was set up was we were contracted with, you know, it was a, it was a large city. So we had maybe 30 plus funeral homes, okay. uh, medical schools and coroner's office that would um, have us contracted to wow. do their pickup. Um, some, in some cases it was just a pickup and drop off at the funeral home, but right. the majority of the time it would either be pick up and embalm or pick up and, and cremate and, you know, deliver the ashes back. The numbers are somewhat skewed. Yeah. The numbers could be somewhat skewed because we may get a person on a call as a coroner call, and then oh. we may get back the second time as of the funeral home to pick up and prep. And then we could potentially get them even back a third time For as a, cremation. a, a bomb or a cremation. Sorry. Wow, that's wild. So, were you doing a lot of embalmings there, or were you on removals? Um, how do you, you know what was your role for that for that large firm? Yeah, we were we were a middleman system, so it was actually yeah. we were considered a direct disposer. We were not a funeral home, right? So um, we would do we would do everything on that side and the owners, uh, I don't know if it had to deal anything with the, the laws, but the owner's wife actually owned the pet crematory next door. So Crazy. we would essentially be on uh, two 12 hour shift rotations and I would work 6 PM to 6 AM. Oh, and whatever happened. We were, we were kind of like a fireman system where we stayed there. We had beds and couches, like wow. nothing was going on. Rarely we, we got to lay down, but we cremated overnight because of just didn't want to hear complaints from the neighbors about smoke or anything like that. Okay. Um, but I, you know, it'd be nothing for three o'clock in the morning. I would get a call to go next door and meet a veterinarian to bring in a dog or something like that as well. Wow. So that was one different dynamic where I've done house calls for pets as well as humans. And it was just kind of part of that specific entity. Um, just, a, a, it, it was definitely a place that you exceeded expectations as far as what you thought you were going to see in the funeral business. Right. I can only imagine what, uh, as far as if you're making a house call for an animal, what are you bringing with you? And what, do you have some questions prior to like, are we need to know the size of the animal that we're dealing with? I, I've never really heard or gotten this answer from anyone before. So I'm interested to know how does that work with, with those kind of pickups? And um, obviously it's a very, very different thing. Yeah, this was out in the, the country of the Midwest. So in particular, uh, one house call I can remember was um, I went out on a farm and picked up a llama. Wow. And they're, you know, much larger than a human stature wise. I yeah. mean, they're typically about seven foot and a couple hundred pounds. And um, I remember this lady and a lot of times I didn't realize this till I worked in it where uh, on farms, it's kind of up to the, you know, the farm hand or the owner on whether or not they let the animal die and rot out in the field or if they pick it up and have it cremated and I guess this lady the the llama had actually been deceased for probably two weeks or oh. 
she decided that it was making the other llamas depressed and that <laughs> she would like to have it cremated. So, jeez, that must they, have been uh, pretty rough, I imagine. That was one of the times where they said, "Hey, can we borrow you from next door?" And I'm like, "Sure, yeah. What are we doing?" <laughs> so, what did what did you bring with you then to to make that removal, to make that transfer? Uh, a tarp. Ah. We, we were anticipating that be a you know with being a llama ahead of time that it would be a decent size animal. Um, and for it being dead for a couple of weeks is the mess too. So you, you had to have the tarp ready to go. <laughs> Yeah, we didn't know what to expect there. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping for the best, but then again, I'm like, oh, this could be very <laughs> bad very quickly. So, so when you were doing these overnight shifts, it, would you get embalm calls then in the middle of the night? Like, how would that work? Because obviously, if someone passes away in the middle of the night, you're not necessarily maybe don't know if they're going to have consent or not. So, do you see like the percent of the embalmings more kind of during that day shift, or or how how did that work for for you guys um at that place? I did eventually work the day shift as well, so uh-huh. I, I did get experience on both sides. Um, a lot of the times, we kind of we kind of had a heads up depending on the funeral home or the circumstance on whether or not it would be a prep. Got it. Uh, I certainly definitely have preps i think the most i did over one 12-hour shift was nine embalmings holy crap and we had four prep stations uh separated by an island so it was two on one side two on the other we had two porta boys and two uh two of the dodge machines and we would just oh man I kind of dueling it on one side and other guys dueling it on the other and setting features getting one ready keeping an eye on him while setting features and raising the vessels on the next body and just kind of staggering our time turn the pressure down turn the rate of flow down so you're not you know running in hurdles that you couldn't expect talk about efficiency there that's crazy the double embalm that's that's something you don't get to see every day that's for sure yeah i mean we you know it was definitely something you had to feel comfortable with Right, but it was um, the stations. The way it was set up, it was very friendly for that. Yeah, I mean, if you're doing that amount of volume, like you might as well make some use of your time, the the efficiency when you're like injecting, like start setting features on the next body and whatever else. I mean, it makes total sense. Like if if you have if you're doing nine on a day, like you just need you're going to need to. Otherwise, it'd be crazy to try to do nine individually over a twelve hour shift. That would be It'd be ridiculous. And the you know the kicker is on the day shift they all the numbers all the statistics from what I remember we did more volume at night plus we did all the cremations at night right and we would essentially we were working with a smaller crew we would there was four of us that Jeez. worked six p.m. to six a.m. we worked over a 14 day schedule we worked seven days as the a team and then seven days as the b team and it was the the opposite with the 6 a.m to the 6 p.m people right there was roughly 10 people during the day wow did you find that tough was that tough doing those 12 hour shifts or did you kind of get used to it over time and um you know it, it had to be such a culture shock going from that sort of environment and then like you said in Maine how things were so much slower like I can't even imagine the difference in kind of the atmosphere and the rate of pace and everything like that too 
Yeah, I mean, whenever it came to that side of it, you definitely seen it as more of like a confidence builder where yeah, people were like, oh, we got two in moments today or something to get ready. I'm like, all right, let's let's get it done. Yeah, <laughs> let's get it done. Because because you know? I'm sure like at the other place, you're like, we got to knock these out now because we don't know how many more we're going to get. So it's like all like a matter of time where the, the clock is ticking nonstop. Yeah, that was uh, that was actually I served my apprenticeship at that place, so it was uh, experience. It was there. jump. I had I had worked for the previous two years while I was in mortuary school, a funeral home that did maybe 150 calls a year. Okay, and then straight into the mortuary service of 7,000 plus, and we were just <laughs> it was a totally different dynamic. <laughs> it really is, and very few people get to experience that. It's, it's pretty wild. What, did you see any kind of what were some of the crazier cases that you saw there, um, whether that was embalming or on on transfers or anything like that? There had to have been some some unbelievable stuff having that level. Yeah, uh, I, I may watch what I say here on some of them, but uh, okay. I think one of the craziest uh, ones that I had I can remember was. Uh, a guy had hung himself from a water tower. Oh, jeez! The you know we were on the coroner call response, so we went out and they were trying to initially convince us to take the ladder up the water tower and pull the gentleman up on the deal. And I was like, "That's not going to happen." Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, we need to call the. You got to get the fire department over here and Cherry pick us up to get the gentleman. And, Absolutely. Uh, and so was they expect you to make that transfer. Like that isn't the paramedics, paramedics duty there. That, like, that's very, I mean, I guess it'd be very different for us in Chicago because that would just never happen for us. So maybe it's just different where, where you were potentially. Yeah. Well, I think there's a big dynamic between the coroner states and the medical examiner states. Right. And, and your areas and uh, a lot of medical examiner states typically have their own response team or transfer team where a lot of the bigger cities and bigger states that have coroners um not that the medical examiners are smaller but um those cities rely on kind of contracting out to people that can you know facilitate that and where um where i was at in such a major city in the midwest that we were already having the 7,000 calls a year, you know, I think that was a big factor in retaining the corner contract and being able to handle that situation. Sure, sure. Uh, that makes sense. Did, they know you can no, handle it. Yeah, and we did have to kind of stagger priority wise because when you're handling that type of volume, we had to put coroner calls and responses would be first because we had to get them back to the medical examiner's office as quickly as we could. Got and it. then it would be any house calls for funeral homes and then it would go to nursing homes and then the hospitals and it just depending on where we were at because there was four of us and it was such a large area in a major city that we kind of had to sometimes volunteer on hey i'm already close by i'll go get this call right you got you know, we got multiple calls coming in at the same time it really helps with once everyone was really familiar with the area and the call setting that we all kind of chipped in for each other. That makes sense. It just try to make everyone's lives easier because 
it just had to be craziness. Did you have um, more like trucks that you were making pickups with or was it a bunch of different vans and every van had two cots in it or was it more like the tiered system? How I know I've seen like high, high volume places have like a, a secondary deck where they can, um, you know, load more bodies onto too. No, I actually didn't see a double decker back of the van until I came down to Florida. Really? Um, but where we were at, we had probably seven or eight vans, uh, either Dodge Caravans or at the time it was a, a Chevy Uplander. Yeah. It was a very useful uh, removal vehicle. Sure. And we would go, uh, this is in between like Indiana, Kentucky and Tennessee. So okay. we would we would have to go out into the sticks sometimes to <laughs> pick someone up. I mean, we covered those entire states and, and regions from Cincinnati to St. Louis, down to Nashville, back wow. up to Louisville. So you had to be good. you're going all over the place then. Like that's a pretty wide, wide range that you're going from right there. Yeah, I mean, sometimes there, you know, there's four of us on the night shift and sometimes two of us would be sent on a house call it's yeah. an eight-hour round trip. Wow. And then the other two guys are stuck by themselves to handle all the city stuff. Jeez, that's tough. That is tough. What is one of what are one or one of the um, crazier embalms that you've had to do? Um, I, I, do some of the funeral homes also – two different questions, I guess, here just popped in my head. Do some of the funeral homes only use or only did use you like a part-time thing? Like if it was a difficult case, they would kind of – you know outsource it to you or was it mostly like no we have your contract and i'm doing every single embalm i guess that was two very different questions but no i, I think a majority of them were set up initially as removal uh and then you know if the embalming factor came in then we would just hold the body over longer to get the prep done Got but it, it would be nothing for me to pick up embalm aspirate and deliver the same night multiple times over the same bodies we had keys to everyone's prep rooms and stuff so we would just come in drop off and have them sitting on their prep table or on a table you know we we kind of knew the layout for almost everyone in the area and uh unreal either that it would hold overnight and then the morning shift would get the next uh situation as far as it turned into an embalming overnight or something like that sure Um, we're only contracted to um, to pick up and remove because they had their own central prep facility, but they just didn't want to do the night removals or didn't have the staff for it. That makes sense. It makes sense. In some cases, almost initial, almost all of it, because we had the coroner's contract as well, especially if they were out of the, uh, the direct city that we were in and had to travel an hour or two, we got all of the autopsies. I can, I'm sure you did. So I, I, I bet. So were you working as a team then on some of the autopsies? I feel like that would be very helpful if you could have someone suturing up cranial and then someone else suturing up the rest of the body. Uh, sometimes we would do that. I, I didn't feel like because we would get left alone on our situation sometimes. I feel like I've done that more in the funeral home than I did ever at the mortuary service. Oh, different, different. So back to that question I had before, what were one of – you know the the most unique cases that you had to embalm then while while you've been in service it doesn't have to be there just in general um i've had a couple really unique ones of just 
violence or something like that. But yeah. some of the some of the more unique ones, I guess, was I've spent a lot of time in uh, the medical school setting of it, embalming cadavers, and oh. a big was uh, I would have to either initially embalm or re-embalm uh, bodies that were prepped depending on the state I was in. Got it. Got so it. elaborate, how does that process work um, for getting a body you know, embalmed to be a cadaver? What kind of solutions are you using? And um, you know, how does the whole process work? That's very interesting. We haven't had anyone on here that has done those for the medical school. So that's, that's very unique different, different type of embalming for extreme preservation. Yeah, everything we expected to do, uh, I've been affiliated with four different medical schools. Wow. Uh, two in Florida, just because of the, the location setting, two of them were connected. Um, and then one in Kentucky and one in Maine. Wow. Uh, and Florida was a little bit unique compared to the other two where in, in Kentucky and Maine, the the body was either picked up by a removal service or by the funeral home and brought to the medical school okay. and then we would do the direct prep there and oh. in florida it was set up differently where everyone had to go through a funeral home regardless and um the paperwork trail basically that we were we had to wait for a death certificate because everything was at need in Kentucky and Maine, you had to be pre-registered and pre, um, you know, acknowledged right. as far as having no communicable diseases and things that could potentially transfer to medical students. Wow. That's, I mean, that must make it much harder than in Florida. If you have to wait, I mean, it could be days, uh, you know, several days to embalm then if you need to have a death certificate, does that make it that much harder then? Well, it could be days to weeks sometimes. Right, yeah. And the difference between Florida and the other two states were that because the funeral homes did all the transfers, they would all do an initial prep and just do a light injection okay. and hold the body over until it was brought to our facility. And then I would do the, the long-term preservation as far as... Uh, uh, you mentioned the chemical solution. Yeah, how, um, how does the whole embalming process work for preservation? Um, I've seen some of the bodies that I think um, have been embalmed for that sort of purpose. And um, it is very, very different and pretty crazy to look at and then see the, the results after the fact. So we'd love to hear like how that process works um, for people that, you know, might be interested in this sort of thing. Yeah. And that was something that I initially did not have. And I think a lot of people in our industry aren't kind of... Uh, open to or yeah. entered to unless you're in kind of either a major city or somewhere that has a medical school near you. Right. Because it's typically a funeral home that's contracted to do the, the transfer for them. And uh, working at the mortuary service in Kentucky, I was initially exposed to that between the, the two medical schools that they have there in the state. And um, that I actually befriended one of the embalmers at the medical school oh. and I would come volunteer. And that was kind of my introduction until I actually got a position with the medical school in Florida. And the, the biggest differential, I think, um, the injection process is very similar where, okay. you know, we're still using, uh, 
a porta boy or you know whatever yeah. it is uh, that you have a frigid or a dodge or champion machine but mm -hmm. they would have the chemicals were so much harsher because of the long-term preservation right um, we pretty much defaulted any warranty immediately um because of the use of phenol right that's what i thought it, it was like a very heavy phenol based and were you just absolutely for lack of a better term plumping them up like injecting as much as you possibly can because don't you want to like have them you know at absolute capacity and then eventually like the tissue would kind of settle into place and uh, you know uh preserve or how, how does it work yeah it's 100 percent preservation at that time you are um you're not setting any features right you're not positioning in any way you're you know if you can you try to keep the body more um supine than anything medically you want the hands palms open face up okay on their back and the biggest uh, dynamic would be uh, as far as like setting up your mixture was that we would get all of our chemicals in 55 gallon drums wow holy so cow it would be a range from maybe a 50 to 80 percent formaldehyde Woo! straight the hide mixture in one 55 gallon drum and there would be a second drum that would be a, a mixture of alcohols phenol uh -huh. glyceride like uh, several different depending on the state a lot of it was either pre-mixed or set up it wasn't directly phenol but that was probably the biggest preserver yeah you know, it was named first on on all of them but it would literally cook them i mean yeah. you're essentially yeah. um it would be like embalming someone with drying and cavity fluid yeah that's that is no joke i mean even using a little bit of that on a on a normal body that'll that'll clear you out so were you take you had to take some probably extreme precautions as far as ppe and stuff too was that the case yeah and we would uh because they were re uh, medical schools they were regulated pretty pretty well we would have to pph test uh pretty consistently mm -hmm. and uh because it was an exposure to the students as well right so we would use that we would um and you you actually over embalm a lot of the cadavers you see will look um very bloated very distended yeah. fogged out most if you will with their arms and their legs uh because we would if you could avoid it, if uh, depending on whether I was in Florida or one of the other states, uh, if they did not rupture the vein for me, I would try to avoid that. We are essentially just wanting to inject and at a high volume, high rate and preserve from head to toe. Um, I would put roughly six to nine gallons into a body. Jeez. Two or three tanks. So that's why like cause that I've seen that, that they looked absolutely plumped up it honestly look like an alien uh when it, i was like oh my gosh what is going on here so you don't open up the vein whatsoever then you just build up that pressure and just like absolutely just go at it i would not i mean essentially with the medical school you're you're doing all your p's and q's as far as like identification because once you do that to everybody yeah you shave your head and then you pump them up it's very hard to tell up besides the sex or the race you know right there's 
little differential because everyone turns gray. Yeah. Everyone held for a long period of time. These bodies are meant to preserve for two to three years. So we yeah. would embalm directly store them either uh, in dry or cool storage for roughly six to 12 months before they would even get pulled out and used in a classroom setting. Wow. Yeah. That's what, that was going to be my next question was how long does it take for them to get to use them? And that's, that's incredible. So, uh, are they oftentimes cremated then afterwards or do they have like a burial plot like that's special for these circumstances or does it kind of depend on the person and depend on the situation? Uh, most every program or at least between Florida and Maine, we had the option uh, the family chose with all the paperwork whenever we received their loved one that mm -hmm. uh, they would either be returned in whole to them. So we would do everything we needed to do, keep everything together for that cadaver and send it to the crematory once everything is done, or uh, they had the option to scatter at sea. Got it, got it. Wow, that's cool. That's that's very unique. Um, I know I, I've seen on your Instagram that you have these, You, I want you to describe them for me. They're these, they look like baseball cards, almost they're like death cards of like famous people. So tell us a little bit about that and how'd you get involved with that and what they actually are, because I'm probably botching it, explaining it. <laughs> No, that's just kind of like a side hobby of mine. I've yeah, been, it's uh, cool. Cards, collecting cards growing up. And yeah. Then, uh, there's been a few different companies over the uh, oh, Discord app for people that are familiar with it. It's primarily used, I think, a lot with like gaming. But uh, there's a couple different like collection or collectors groups that have that. And um, I've collected different cards over the years. And there were some people that had brought uh, kind of a new phase to collecting cards that aren't sports cards or like alternative type yeah. of card, um, famous people or um, situations or uh, myths, you know, that type of thing. And uh, one of mine that I thought was really unique and kind of need to be shared was uh, the history of some of the more famous assassinations that have happened and the people that have, uh, you know, they're, they're some of the great minds that have been lost um, over the years. And, you know, it obviously hits home with being someone that deals with death in the industry every day. Right. But um, in some of those instances, in, in most of them, in the initial kind of card set that I made and, and had fun with was, uh, you know, a lot of people that were before my time. But, yep. um, you know, just people that you can't deny in history and, and how they affected people overall. Yeah, it's cool. It, it's a whole different spin on, you know, uh, kind of commemorating someone's life too. And it, it's just like a, a very unique, interesting thing. And I feel like people would love if they were affectionate towards that person or whatever they did, like that'd be kind of a cool thing to have in, in like memory of that person. And I mean, it's like the same thing we do with, you know, when we keep our own memorial cards or prayer cards, when you go to a service, like if someone had that impact on you, like, yeah, why wouldn't I want to have something like that to, to kind of remember that person's life? Yeah. And some of the one, you know, I, I, in the initial set that I did was, uh, Gandhi, JFK, RFK, Martin Luther King, you know, people that have just made a pronounced influence on, um, anyone really, I think anyone who's ever, you know, knows the history and, right. and any of the speeches or uh, any of that aspect and that, uh, you know, they've been tragically lost. And, 
you know, some of those guys were before my time, but even the more current ones, uh, music wise with Tupac, Notorious yep. B.I.G., Nipsey Hussle, um, people that impact people with words, I think, and then face a, a global or at least in their own um, group of people that follow them, uh, an experience of loss, whether you actually met them or not. Yeah, it kind of has that impact. And uh, you definitely impacted us too with, with your words and your knowledge here today. So we appreciate you coming on and uh, keep up all the great work uh, down in Florida. We wish you all the luck with uh, this bad weather coming in and saying uh, having our thoughts and our prayers with you guys. And um, hopefully that doesn't make for you guys being too busy down there or anything like that that's coming up. Uh, we're, we're all going to be ready for it. So we're going to, we're going to hold strong here and uh, hope for the best as far as the weather goes. And, um, you know, hopefully nothing bad happens, but if it does, I feel confident that the people here in the area will be ready for it and we'll definitely be ready for it. Good. I'm, I'm glad to hear it and stay safe. And we appreciate you taking the time and, uh, we'll, we'll be speaking with you soon. Thanks a lot, Michael. All right. Take care Michael. I appreciate it.